0: Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people, with news, views and expert interviews.
1: Hi, I'm Steve Randall and welcome to another of our special podcast episodes featuring the many people that Peter Finn, Pete the Builder and I spoke to at the Footprint Plus event at the start of June. We learned a lot and discovered some fascinating work that's going on to ensure that the construction industry is part of the greener, more sustainable world that we need as we drive towards carbon net zero. If you can't wait to catch up with all our guests from Footprint Plus, have a listen to our online radio stream where you can hear them all. Just visit constructive-voices.com, don't forget the dash, or ask Alexa to launch Constructive Voices. However you listen, with Constructive Voices, the conversation is building.
0: Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland.
2: I'm Stuart McLaren. I'm the Net Zero Director for Infrastructure um, for SNC-Lavalin and originally part of the Atkins Group, which is now part of the family of SNC-Lavalin. I'm also the Decarbonomics Development Director, um, which is looking at um, decarbonising existing buildings um, at the estate level, at the enterprise level. Um, and I'm, I guess my main focus is uh, looking at uh, innovation uh, and incubation of new solutions uh, to address the climate change challenge around decarbonising the built environment, major infrastructure, including buildings, which is what we're here to talk about today. Yeah, excellent stuff. And uh, an event like Footprint Plus is
3: certainly a big melting pot of a lot of uh, very similar minded people. And uh, it's quite busy here today, which is great to see. And is there anything that you've uh, taken out of being involved in the event and anything that you think is uh, very positive about being involved in events like this?
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. We're only three years in from net zero being legislated in the UK. And it's great to see uh, these events now that are focused solely on the topic of how we actually achieve net zero, uh, particularly around buildings, which makes up around 40% of of global emissions. Um, and particularly in the UK, uh, where 83 84% of the population live in urbanised areas. So this really is such a topical issue for us to be discussing. And so just the fact that we are congregated, having these discussions with the whole value chain that is uh, involved in trying to solve this issue, uh, is just a really strong signal of sort of the commitment and interest and intent of industry to, to really turn up and put their heads together and this to me is about learning and sharing uh, our insights because we are still new we're still finding our way forward um, and the more we come together and and share the lessons learned about what good looks like or what bad looks like um, the more chance we have of actually succeeding at this monumental challenge. Very good very good and I know you're very experienced in in this topic
3: it's not something that you've just uh, got involved in recently you've got a, a vast experience in it and um, there was a recent New York Times article that said the UK and I think there was one other country are one of the only two countries in the world that are on target to, to meet uh, the targets that have been set uh, which is very positive to hear and um, is there something that you, know, you think that we can do to improve on that um, is there any element of, of what you do in, in your aspect of, of your work that, that you would really like to push a, at this moment in time
2: well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's uh, It depends who you uh, read. So if you look at the Committee on Climate Change's budget reports, actually we're massively behind where we need to be and we're falling way short of what's needed. So, you know, what I'd say we've been particularly good at is making the commitment, is legislating, which is something uh, only a handful of other countries have actually done, is actually move it into legislation and create a burning platform. Um, the issue is the lack of teeth and the lack of policy and regulation to support the legislation and it's still confused um, the, and the industry is still trying to find its feet and understand exactly what the best path forward is um, that doesn't mean we should wait actually we, we just need to get going we, we can't wait for perfection we've just got to get started but equally we also do need to hatch a plan as we go and ultimately end up in a very coordinated very focused place um, so I think there's still significant amount of work to do and this is again I come back to the point of us as an industry we we learn and we share what we're doing how we're doing it because fundamentally every aspect of how we deliver these types of outcomes uh, it can't rely on our established ways of doing things whether it's technical delivery uh, project delivery, commercial delivery, commercial innovation all these things need to be looked at um, as we try and address um, how we deliver these large particularly here today the large part of the topics on retrofit if you've got a big estate if you own hundreds if not thousands of buildings this is years if not decades of work which will in some instances be quite hard to justify on cost grounds so um, there's a lot we can do and today is just a great example of seeing what we are doing Um, and I'm taking away to be honest great inspiration that there's a lot of people are all heading in the right direction Uh, and hopefully we will be converging very soon Excellent stuff, just
3: last question then Stuart, I kind of like to put it in simple terms I I like to say that maybe the talking stage of sustainability is over and we're now in the action phase Um, is it fair to say that there needs to be more push from government level, there needs to be more drive to make sure that the action gets the, the reaction that we need which is um, exactly like what you just said they're huge estates in concept that sounds good but in reality that's going to cost a lot of money and a, a lot of logistics to get those things uh, done correctly so I suppose um, what would you like to see or what, what, what's your last word I suppose on how do we make that step how do we get that push to really encourage people to come on board and, and to make the difference
2: yeah it's interesting like the the level of commitment is clear and it's growing all the time but I would say that if I was to characterise where we are as an, a wider economy it's, it's still very much rooted in understanding the nature of the challenge planning and maybe road mapping there's not that much in terms of at scale delivery like stuff is happening there's some good stuff out there there's some great examples of things but it's all fairly small scale in comparison to what's actually got to be done um, and I would say we are Approaching this transition in parts of our economy and in different sectors that are maybe more advanced than others um, but actually turning commitment into a plan into action is, is still broadly where we are um, and it's that issue of not waiting for perfection again and, uh, and actually getting industry to be uh, mature enough to be able to stand up to the challenge is, is kind of where we're at now Um, And Brexit, the cost of living crisis, uh, geopolitical instability and wars and so on, all these massive shocks macroeconomically just continue to sort of really test the resolve of of our ability to make the case and actually keep driving forward. And so, um, you know, these are turbulent waters we're traversing at the minute. Um, But again, you you see how everyone's turning up today. Client organisations as much as the value chain, and again, it's really encouraging. It's uh, it's a really encouraging space.
3: Excellent stuff. Thank you very much for your time, Stuart. Hope you can relax now and enjoy the event and do plenty of networking. Thank you very much.
2: From the Footprint Plus event
4: in Brighton, UK, to the global construction industry. This is
0: Constructive Voices.
5: My name is Ziad Asmar. I'm a structural engineer at Pinnacle Consulting Engineers. Um, we focus on... A wide range of different types of buildings. We do a lot of commercial uh, buildings, uh, retail, um, and we do some residential buildings as well. Um, Now I can go into depth in terms of what types of commercial buildings we do. Uh, We are mainly focused on data centers, which are a very big um, industry at the moment. Um, We do work with very high-end clients like Microsoft, Google, Amazon. Um, We are building all around the UK um, and even outside of the UK in Europe, in some parts of Europe. Um, We have one of our offices in Germany at the moment. And uh, yeah, it's it's going going very well and very interesting uh, times ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned some of those those big name
1: clients, and I imagine clients of, of all sizes, but particularly those big ones that are in stark global focus. Everybody wants to know how they're achieving their ESG um, you know, criteria and uh, are they doing things correctly. Um, so, I mean, sustainability must be at the heart of, of everything you do now.
5: Of course it is. And we are being pushed more and more by clients to um, minimize the amount of steel and the amount of uh, carbon we are emitting. And we are looking at different alternatives, uh, like, for example, importing low-carbon steel from Europe. Uh, We're studying that, um, the cost implications, obviously, and the amount of uh, uh, carbon that's being emitted in terms of kilogram of of carbon uh, dioxide. Um, And one of the um, uh, speakers was talking about how we need to optimize and maximize the utilization ratios of our structure, which minimizes the sizes of the, of the beams, of the columns, um, to reduce the carbon emissions because obviously the less steel we're using, the less amount of carbon dioxide we're going to um, emit. And also another point, and a very important point, is the geometry of the building. We always focus on that. Uh, we take into account, we study um, ha- what our best uh, geometry we can tackle to, to keep, obviously, the client happy and the architect happy and integrate that with the m um, and equipment to come up with a reasonable solution. We always try to avoid transfer structures because transfer structures are usually um, higher in cost in terms of uh, higher, higher emissions of, of CO2, um, but sometimes they're ineva- inevitable. Such as sometimes you do need clear spans, especially in the data centers where you have the racks. Um, But there are always ways around it, and and we do we do our best to, you know, accommodate and, and satisfy everybody. Now, you've mentioned cost a couple of times, and that's, that's always a big
1: one. And, you know, whether it's the smaller clients or whether it's a huge global client, cost is the one that they're going to ask about. How f- sort of flexible, when you're having that conversation, and you're saying, well, you know, we, we'd rather use less steel, we'd rather use this, it may be a little bit more expensive, but how do those conversations go and how receptive
5: are these, uh, these, these companies to that? Um, at the moment... To be honest with you, they are more receptive, more and more receptive because of the, um, the, the move of, of reducing the carbon. However, once it isn't in the regulations and it isn't forced yet, once it is forced and it is set by the regulators, I think that's when we're going to see an exponential change. At the moment, cost is a big factor, yes. We do have other factors, which are the other variables, which is the carbon uh, emissions, and we do need to look at both equally if, if not, um, you know, if we want to meet the, the 2030 and the 2050 net zero carbon emissions. So it is, it is a very hot topic. We are doing our best as an industry, as designers. And we come up with different solutions and propose them to clients. Obviously, the, uh, the cost is a, is a very big factor. But once, I think, in my personal opinion, once it is forced and regulated that's when we're gonna see real change. That's where we're gonna squeeze our designs to the maximum. <laughs> Fantastic, and from the conversations that
1: you've had here with with people at Footprint Plus, and there have been a lot of people through here over the last few days, uh, are you, what are people saying to you? What's the sort of feedback you're getting from them? Or what are you learning
5: from them as well? Because it's very much a, a 360 thing, this. It is, it is, there's a lot to learn. Um, I mean, there is a lot to, to grasp as well. Um, I'm not going to go into detail <laughs> one by one, but uh, I've been to a couple of events, very interesting events. Um, I was just in the historic, uh, h- historic England. Uh, they were talking about the circular economy and uh, how we can you know, repurpose, uh, reuse the old heritage buildings and what value they create, because uh, in old heritage building, buildings, the, the, uh, they usually they have character, they have an architectural aspect to it, which builds a lot of value. And um, there are, they, usually that is the preference to go to, you know, a, an old building rather than starting a brand new building because that would, that would reduce the carbon emissions massively. So it's the way that it's going forward but obviously that depends on what the clients need, what the purpose of the building is going to be and uh, there are, there are a, lot of, uh, a lot of topics and studying that is going on at the moment.
1: I mean, that's why this event is so great, isn't it? Because there are so many people talking about so many different things. And, and once you sort of piece them together
5: and see how it fits into your world, you can see how the solutions are, are going to be possible. Exactly. Yes, I agree. I agree 100%. And it's a very good place to network as well and understand different companies and what they do and how they're contributing to all this low-carbon emission uh, goal. <laughs> Absolutely. And where can people find out more about you? Um, they can go visit our website. We are on social media. um everywhere on social media so Facebook we're on LinkedIn it's um, my business card over here <laughs> I can hand it over to you um, but yeah we are we are pinnacle consulting engineers um, we are uh, all around uh, the UK we have offices in uh, Norwich in London well in Garden City and uh, recently in Germany uh, and also in Ireland so um, we're a strong team we do mostly structures and civils um, and, yeah exciting exciting times ahead <laughs> lovely well thanks very much for, for spending some
1: time talking to us and enjoy the rest of the event thank you you too
0: this is constructed voices i'm nick hillard i've just recently joined thai construction and vision modular as their esg lead so looking after the environmental social and governance aspects of the delivery of 3d modular designs excellent stuff and
3: uh, i heard your uh your talk there um very interesting stuff um to to be able to carry out modular construction on such a a large scale is very impressive stuff. Um, We do believe that modular is the future going forward. Um, Am I right in saying that?
0: Yeah, I mean, we work in modular and traditional construction, but primarily focus around uh, modular design. So we were here launching a research paper that we've just um, undertaken, looking at two of our buildings that went up in 2020. uh, The world's tallest modular building, George Street in Croydon, and a, um, a student accommodation building in uh, Gants Hill in London um, so yeah it's exciting exciting times for modular design I think there's a real impetus behind it um, you know, for, for the benefits that we can discuss. Yeah absolutely
3: like I think the timing of uh, modular construction coming to the fore with the sustainability issue going forward with the ability to be able to record your carbon footprint correctly when you're doing it in a modular way and um, but to be able to take you know modular construction and do it in such a large scale like like the project that you just or projects that you've just discussed there are you know it it really does take modular construction to a new level in, in my mindset is it fair to say that and, and like you know develop a little bit further about exactly what you did do with these projects
0: yeah it, indeed i mean we, we we build buildings of various heights um as i say the world's tallest building in croydon the modular building um and all the way through to you know built to rent but primarily focused around residential housing, and we see we see the, uh, the sustainability credentials of the building, but all, alongside this this dire need for more housing, and um, and we're certainly operating that space to try and blend those two together. Um, so the piece of work we've just um, we've just launched is uh, independent academic research around the embodied carbon in the in the building itself or the two buildings. So we found something in the region of forty five percent saving against a traditional. Reinforced concrete method of construction, which beat you know benchmark figures from Letty and from Reba um, already. You know the business as usual by about 50% already, and we're ahead of a 2030 benchmark for one of those buildings. So, yeah, you know, this is this is real uh, groundbreaking research on existing buildings rather than um, you know in in design.
3: Yeah, I think that's the that's the difference about this conversation is that it, it's it's happened and it's happening um, and. I'm delighted to hear that because, you know, when it comes to sustainability and it comes to you know, uh, carbon net zero, a lot of, of the d- discussion is discussion. You know, you do hear of some projects that have got there, but to hear that you've completed these projects, are, are have more projects on the way and are doing it in such a, a sustainable way, it really does give hope and it does it does. Uh, it's, it's great to hear that you're ahead of your targets because I think. That's the problem with targets. Sometimes you can be ahead, sometimes you can be behind, and maybe some areas can be ahead and behind. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and sort of how modular construction and what you do can
0: help reach those targets? Yeah, indeed. There's a lot of walking, uh, walking the walk now and, and, and talking the talk. So um, we wanted to instruct this piece of work to actually... You know, we knew that... We, we thought there was a benefit in terms of embodied carbon to the, to, the, to the buildings that we're putting up. And this independent research has actually demonstrated that, which is great news. We know that modular design assists in terms of you know, um, nuisance on site, numbers of people on site. We know it's a, it's a, it's a, a quality construction on the basis of factory-designed modules, etc., um, and factory controlled in a quality environment, so we know those those additional benefits are there. This piece of work was was specifically around the embodied carbon, and and, and there's other research that we're undertaking in terms of you know, what you alluded to there in terms of post occupancy evaluation. How are those buildings performing against the design um, design target of A-rated EPC? You know, are we exi- are we um, fulfilling that role in operation? And there's there's a whole piece of work there. You know, what are our occupants of those ultimate you know, developments you know, experiencing in terms of the buildings themselves. Yeah, you know, so tying in the social side as well as the environmental benefits, uh, and then certainly from the from the governance side in terms of certifications and and standards, etc. These things are um, leading the way, and um, and you know the, the variability in terms of design and, and these are real you know show showpiece um, architectural uh, buildings.
3: Excellent stuff, and also. I suppose when we talk about modular construction, sometimes people just think about it as residential, but like it's not just residential. Like it it can be, you know, like in China there was hospitals built very quickly. You know that was something that you know at start of the pandemic it kind of went viral and everybody got to see it. And of course the question was why aren't we doing that? And the answer was we are actually doing it, but people aren't really you know buying into it. I suppose is the best way to put it. Um, And you know there's so many other issues that can be. quickly resolved by by uh, going down the modular route is it is that fair to say or or is that you know am i maybe exaggerating when i say those things
0: i think it might have been to the detriment of the modular sector that, that everything's been grouped together you know we focus around high-rise especially residential built to rent um and you know hotels and student accommodation but you know other modular designs will fulfill other other needs and and um, you know ultimately if they are um, if they are requiring you know tight timescales etc tight sites constrained sites um, then it is the answer to to some of our uh, some of the issues in the sector great right, so so final
3: question and uh, thanks very much for your time and um, so we are all on this path to to try and uh, do good try and help our planet get to carbon net zero and um, in your opinion are we going there fast enough and are we going to get there on time?
0: We were leading with the way um, and I think there is an appetite to continue to do that. Um, So, yeah, we we have got to maintain our leadership position across the the globe in terms of... uh, in terms of driving this agenda, because it is, as you say, one planet living. Constructive Voices, live
6: at Footprint Plus. So my name's Josie Cadwallader-Hughes, and I'm the Sustainability Director at FACUM.
1: Tell me more about what you do, and particularly about these uh, zero-carbon
6: homes. Yeah, so uh, we're committed to building zero-carbon communities. We committed to three uh, zero-carbon commitments that are called net zero by 2025. Now, the first one of that is that the homes that we will deliver from the 1st of January in 2025 will be zero carbon. None of this tricky transition period. We want to make it really clear to our customers that if we're giving you a set of keys from that date, that home will be zero carbon. So to do that, there's always this um, huge lag with planning applications, how long it takes to design and then build and then hand over a house that means that we've been planning for zero carbon for quite a long time already and we've just built our first zero carbon homes for Waverley Borough Council as a contractor because that's they committed they um, declared that they had a climate change emergency back in 2019 and this is their first example of them showing that they are walking the talk as well so they uh, we built that out for them there's about I think there's about 23 homes they're all zero carbon now the tricky thing is, is because we planned this so long ago they still have gas boilers in which is a fossil fuel but technically it's, it's still a zero carbon house so the next versions of that obviously will be moving towards air source heat pumps it's an evolution and it's about changing with technology and changing with how government decide what zero carbon is
1: so give us an idea of i mean obviously there are going to be a lot of things that go into making this uh, zero carbon but give, give us uh, some of the, the big ones some of the big factors that maybe those listening will be thinking oh, okay so that's how they did that bit
6: Now, it's it's actually really simple. The first thing that you've got to do is reduce your energy demand, your need for energy, because then producing it from solar panels gets a lot easier because you don't need as many of them when you've only got a certain amount of roof space. So when it comes down to the fabric of of a wall in a house, really, construction of a home hasn't really changed for about 200 years. It's very, very similar to how it's always been what you need to do is invest in that because it's not going to go obsolete it doesn't require maintenance and it doesn't need a manual as thick as war and peace to be able to understand how to use it now that is an upfront investment and it does take space and it does take time to understand how that works now that kind of leads on to that second point is that net zero by 2025, our campaign towards that, the first one is around the operational use of a home and making sure that that is a zero carbon home the second one is that it's carbon neutral in production, which means the materials that we use, we know how much carbon went into producing that and we reduce it down and then we offset it so we're in this careful balance of we know that the best way to make a home zero carbon, the first thing you need to do is make the walls more efficient so you need less energy but also, we're the only house builder out there that's juggling that with understanding, making sure that we're not causing the next big carbon problem, that actually the homes that we build are more efficient in operational use and the walls uh, have lower embodied carbon. So very, very complex. But, you know, the first thing you've got to do is reduce energy demand, but you've got to do it in the right way, and that's what we're trying to do.
1: I mean, it is very exciting. And with the, the, the sort of the next, the evolution, as you said, the next step moving away from the gas boilers, you know how, How's that going to uh, make things even better in terms of your process?
6: So the real big trouble for developers is the amount of electricity that is available in the local area when you go to design a development. So it might be, if you're going to um, put in a development of a thousand homes, just a notional site somewhere, the things you've got to look at is, in terms of the electricity use that you've got on, so I've just been on stage with Phil Steele, who is... Uh, technology evangelist for Octopus Energy. Now, they've got some amazing tariffs and amazing products that help solve this problem. But the problem is, is that... What the uh, local DNO, the district network operator, the people that run the local grid expect is that for these 1,000 notional homes that we're building, that everyone's going to turn their kettle on at the same time, that everyone's air source heat pump is going to flick on at the same time, and also they've just driven home and they've just plugged their car in, which is another 7 kilowatts per house. This huge spike of energy that the local grid can't can't cope with because it's not, let's say this 1,000 homes is right here in Brighton, um, it might they, they can't assume that all at once rampian wind turbines are behind us in the distance and it's not going to suddenly get windy and cope with all of this demand so they take this massive spike as the worst possible scenario and we have to deal with that so what that means is that developers pay millions and millions of pounds into upgrading that local grid to be able to get all of the electricity they need for that worst-case scenario. So in terms of the problems, the, sol- the solutions that we need to be able to solve this crisis that's going to happen, in terms of we know what we want to desire, desire, um Design to make a low-carbon, a uh, low-cost electric house is actually that managing that peak demand. And like I said, Octopus are doing some great things. Um, other energy companies are doing great things. But it's how do we? create an environment where when you move onto that development you accept that if everyone plugs their uh, electric car in at once to charge that actually it's going to make sure that you are fully charged by when you leave for work but it might not be charging all at once it's the same as over lockdown all of the kids logged on to peppa pig all at once right we didn't all get the same speed i was sat at teams going i can't understand what my ceo is saying to me because it's just gone black on me right so it's the same sort of theory for electric we need to have uh, have the technology. We need to have the solutions that deal with that complexity of everyone needing to use that electricity at different points in a in a in a day.
1: Uh, do do you see a role for, for off grid solutions to this at all?
6: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, rampions in the background, um, turning away, and you know all of that stuff is is necessary. We want to make sure that. To be honest, when you buy a house, it's a huge investment of a lot of money. There's this idea of the home is the castle, and what that means is that it's mine, it's on my roof, I understand how it works because it's there and I have the receipt. And, um, you know, that's great, except from if you go on holiday for a week, that energy could be used by your neighbour that's been, you know, produced by your solar panels. But that home is the castle kind of way of thinking... It's the same for water as well. If if your water bar has captured all of your rainwater, but you're not around flushing the toilet, but someone next door is, that, that would be the best use of your local energy or your local water, is the stuff that's been generated on that site. So, you know, we need to move away from that home. as a castle idea. We need to be able to share um, and balance our local grid, whether it's water or electricity. Now, that's very complex, and there's not really the easy systems for developers to be able to install this because there also needs to be that element of control. Who's going to maintain it? And uh, who's going to maximise it? What sort of systems are going to be there to make sure that actually people have the choice that if they don't want to share, they don't have to. But some people might realise we need to... F- make sure that there are systems and tariffs and whatever they are to uh, pe- for people to be able to financially realise the benefits of sharing that locally rather than moving to offsite. And
1: I guess people who have lived in leasehold properties, certainly in, in sort of apartments and, and flats that are, uh, have a management company and they do a certain amount of things, they, they, they do have an idea now about how working together on certain things means a better community for all.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the other speaker that was on this session earlier, Olaidi, um, she's from Socius, who absolutely invest in... They, they don't support developments with fossil fuel. So the people that move on to those sort of developments, now, now they, they are urban developments. There's, I think they've got one in Hove. And, and the people that move onto that development are committed to that. They tend to be more socially, environmentally aware and make decisions based on ethics and... Um, and and that they, they do that, you know, they they're seeing customer, more than enough customers come to them going, understanding that when they move on to that development, there are solar panels that are shared and you don't have a space for a car, but you do have access to an electric car club. Now that's part of the process of buying something from them and it is that shared asset idea. Now we build predominantly in West Sussex, in Surrey, in Hampshire and you know, the kind of home counties areas and what we're trying to do is We know that we we don't need a few people doing sustainability perfectly. We need millions of people doing it imperfectly, and that's what we're trying to achieve. Our homes don't look radically different, and they needn't look radically different from the other homes being built in West Sussex. It needs to fit in with the local vernacular, but it needs to do things that are fundamentally different within the fabric of the walls, within the technology that's in there, and within the uh, facilities that are available in your radius so you know no longer should you have to get in a bus for an hour to go to the school which is, is the case in some of west sussex actually we should be building developments that have got multiple schools on them so that we're solving that transport carbon issue as well as affecting people's way of lives
1: and the big one of course cost i mean to to build the homes that you're building is it a lot more is it cheaper is it about the same
6: uh, obviously, that it's more. Yeah, of course it is. There's no hiding away from that. There are there are two factors. There are three factors in making sure that we build a house. Now, the first one is build cost, which if we're putting more materials in, there's going to be a bigger build cost. Now, there's stuff that we can do to that, and actually we've reduced the cost down by half from what we thought it was to build a zero-carbon home. Two years ago, we've now halved that amount. Um, and then the other thing is profits. There's a certain amount of profit margin that or, or You know, survival that a housing association needs to have to to keep going, same as a a house builder like ourselves, that obviously needs to be in there as well. We can't reduce that too much more. So the final thing that can be affected is land value. And then basically what we do is we're never going to be the... um, the developer that goes to a land uh, owner or an estate owner and says we will offer you the most amount of money possible because we know that affects our ability to deliver sustainable homes so the landowners that we tend to work for um, are ones that are interested in legacy they want to make sure that the homes are there that after they've sold the land to us are sustainable that have exceptional quality that have schools shops community assets whether it's a community owned shop or a community owned cafe they want to see that you know that and that's what's important so that's the bit that can flex for us that's how we make this business model work is that we flex the land value to make sure that we uh, can cope with the rise in build costs that we can still make a a profit and that we can deliver exceptional homes
1: And, and are you seeing more landowners being receptive to this or actually actively kind of wanting this and wanting that that sense of legacy
6: We do yeah Uh, we we certainly have enough to keep us busy Uh, but you know we feel passionately that there should be more you know that should be such a priority and to be honest it's not we're not just looking for landowners that or land agents that just have it out the good will of their hearts actually the way that we put it to them is that it's a faster route to consent for them this is a faster route because we know that we're building stuff that the local authority want that the public want and that our customers want so for us it's, it, we, we don't just angle it towards oh, I'm afraid we won't be able to give you as much money as XY volume house builder but we'll be able to do nice things it's actually about well you know the stuff that we're going to build is beautiful you'll be proud of it and you'll, we'll be able to get there quicker
1: brilliant where can people find out more
6: So you can find us at www.thacom.com. We're on Instagram. We're on all of the social medias, LinkedIn, you know, all of the others. Um, We're based in Billingshurst in West Sussex. So I'm really pleased to be able to come to an event that's actually local to me for once. Um, uh, But then, yeah, my name's Josie Cadwallader-Hughes and you can find me on LinkedIn.
0: From the Footprint Plus
4: event in Brighton, UK, to the global construction industry.
7: This
0: is Constructive Voices.
7: Hi, I'm Paul Sullivan. Um, I'm a chartered surveyor. i um, been working in the industry for about 22 years now. Um, work for a company called ISG. We're a global business. Um, turnover is in excess of £2 billion a year. Um, we work in the fit-out team and we're really focused on the environment and the climate at the minute. Um, and myself and a colleague, Mike Lenahan, are setting up a new business within ISG, which is around decarbonising and retrofitting existing buildings. Um, Our initial focus is going to be in London, but we're going to roll it out, um, hopefully through the UK, um, over the coming years. Um, So we felt like we should come to to this event to really just gain a bit of knowledge and understanding. Um, It's kind of, when you do your research um, online, it's it's a bit of a minefield. There's a lot of people in this space. Um, but we felt like this was a real focused event and we could really get some benefit from it um, we've been here for the three days um, obviously been attending a lot of the the talks um, found them really interesting um, there's obviously um, you know a lot of a lot of people out here in, in, in this space now and we're you know making a lot of connections here which is which is really positive for us yeah great stuff uh, i've i've had the chance to listen to quite a lot of the,
3: the, the talks myself as well and the retrofit side of it is, is absolutely huge obviously retrofitting a building an existing building massively reduces the, uh, the embodied carbon because you're not starting from scratch you're not doing the demolition phase as well so it's certainly something I think is, is coming to the fore now and uh, obviously, your, your company
7: is, is, is taking this very seriously, and it's probably a drive that you're going to push even further in, in the coming years. Yeah, m- massively. I mean, I mean, what we see, obviously, with the upcoming um, changes in the Mises legislation um, and the requirement to get to all buildings to an EPCB by 2030 retrofitting is going to be a, a massive thing to decarbonise. Um, you know, the UK stock. Um, I think there's something like 1.6 billion, uh, 1.6 million, sorry, um, non-domestic buildings in the UK. Um, and they contribute about 50% of the carbon emissions. So, I mean, definitely there's a lot of work to do in this space. I guess my biggest concern and one thing we're worried about is um, there's a lot of work and obviously once the government mandates this and the work needs to be done um, out there by 2030, um, we're just concerned whether there's the trades to do it. Um, We've estimated that there's probably a shortfall of about 130,000 tradesmen and that's at a time when the industry is already suffering with a labour shortage, where, you know, from the likes of people not coming into industry, from the school leavers through to Brexit and people leaving the industry and going back to their, 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 their home countries. So, you know, I think we've got a massive, um, you know, uphill struggle to, to get this done. And that's, I guess, why we at ISG wanted to put ourselves at the forefront of this um, and make sure we've got an offering that, you know, clients can come to and rely on. Um, you know, we've got, we have got a great supply chain and we can we can rely, we can, you know, utilise and rely on those to make sure we can deliver what we Clients.
3: Yeah, that's excellent. It's a very, very uh, fair point. Uh, like, I don't think it's isolated in in the UK. I think uh, definitely, I've, I'm seeing it myself in Ireland, and we're seeing it globally as well. Um, and it, I think there needs to be a push to to get more people back into construction. But I think if a company like ourselves has the, the manpower and, and, and has the resources to, to, to cover the work that needs to be done, I think it's going to be a huge advantage, because I think, you know, setting targets is a good, very good thing to do, it has to be done, and even supplying grants is a very good thing to do, but if you don't have the workforce to do it, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, not going really going to work. Um, so I suppose is that your main focus is to make sure that you're out there to give uh, the resources to get these, these works completed?
7: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I mean, our focus is to make sure we've got a complete um, like turnkey offering for our clients so that um, we can come in. Um, we can assess their building, tell, you know, identify what the problems are, if it's healthy or unhealthy, um, come up with a scheme of interventions. Obviously, a lot of these buildings that we're going to be working in are going to be occupied, and our, is, our specialism is going in in occupied spaces and making sure we understand how the occupants use the space, and, and we do the work sympathetically around them. So that's going to be critical for us. Um, and then also, one of the key things for us isn't just like to finish the job and just hand it over to the client and walk away. It's about monitoring it and making sure that the performance of the building that we've, we've just completed... You know, actually delivers so that you know the goals we set right at the beginning to make this you know you know as efficient as it can be when they're actually operating and using it. We want to part of our offering is going to be to maintain and and hold that client's hand all the way through um, their life with that building and make sure that it's it's performing and you know delivering what what it's what we said it would. Yeah, excellent So, so an all-round package basically being delivered, um, that's being
3: done in a way that can be monitored and and uh, the the building owner can then. You know show that they're doing their part as well so um i suppose final question um obviously there's the reason why you're here is because you're aware of of the the situation in terms of uh the challenge that we have ahead to meet the targets to try and get as close as we can to carbon net zero do you think the industry is taking it seriously enough at the moment do you think there needs to be a stronger push where would you say we are um in terms of the battle ahead
7: Well, I think certain parts of the industry are taking it seriously. I mean, you can see here. There's all the obviously M&E consultants and the like that are kind of leading it at the minute. Um, I think there's other parts of the industry, um, and definitely from us, I haven't seen many contractors lingering around here. Um, You know, not subcontractors, and we're a massive part of that because ultimately it needs to be done. Um, Like I said, and if if the knowledge isn't out there from you know the contracting side of things and the understanding that that, that we need a push to drive people into our industry to make sure we've got the labour force to deliver it, I I, I think that would be a massive problem. So I think that there's you know it needs be a bit more um, awareness um, and, you know, a bit broader spectrum of the industry than there currently is, if I'm being honest. I mean, and in terms of, um, you know, achieving net zero or even the the, you know, the, the, the gateways through to it, i.e. the, the, the B by, by 2030, look, I think these are essential to set these targets, but I do think that, um, you know, as an industry, we're, we are probably going to struggle to achieve them, if I'm being honest. Um, but, you know, that's what we're here to do, and we're going to put all our efforts in and make sure that, you know, we're at the forefront of that, helping clients deliver they're building to um, net zero uh, going forward.
3: In construction, we always have challenges. I, I quite often say this on our podcast that, you know, if there was ever an industry that gets over challenges, it's the construction industry because we constantly have them. we constantly deadlines that we've got to, to reach. And uh, we are going to be a huge part of this, this push. And with people like yourselves and, and with that kind of drive coming from uh, High-level companies. It's where we where we hopefully will achieve, isn't it? it was very nice to meet you, Paul. And uh, best of luck with everything going forward. All right, thank you very much.
0: This is Constructive Voices.
4: Hello, Martin Hale from Raw Charging.
1: Hi, Martin. Now, EV charging is it's going to be a really big story in the next few years, isn't it? As we move towards 2030, when sales of new uh, petrol and diesel cars are banned in the UK, uh, obviously a lot of people are already moving towards EVs, and charging is the big question that people have, as well as range. Uh, How how is your firm helping to uh, address that issue?
4: Yes, thank you. Um, Basically, these vehicles need to be fueled, and the great opportunity is the fuel is everywhere. So, electricity compared to diesel or petrol. Um, And that means empowering various places where these vehicles sit for long periods, or if it's Uh, extending the range of the vehicles doing it quickly at motorway service stations uh, and that's what we do, we do all of that um, and we're agnostic to the solution, we look at what the use case is for all those different locations requires and then uh, we give three different types of ownership option, you can buy it, you can pay monthly or we'll fully fund it and then the driver pays per kilowatt hour and that's how we get our return on funding it.
1: Now, obviously, everyone's seen charging stations in car parks, for example, and at service stations. Um, I imagine increasingly commercial building tenants, as well as the, the owners of those buildings, want these charging stations to be there because as, as more and more firms move towards electric fleets, they're going to need this, aren't they? And, and their customers who have electric cars of their own are going to be saying, well, you know, have you got somewhere I can charge my car?
4: Absolutely, and, and the use cases are workplace for employees, where so that's where large employers want to, all well, employers want to uh, help their employees, especially ones that can't charge at home. So that's very important. And yeah, fleets when all vehicles are electric, fleet charging is going to be absolutely critical, um, and that's going to be not only at the depot, or when the car possibly goes home, but also publicly charging and joining all those three up, which is a big, big. Uh, Requirement, uh, which we can do, and then there's um, of course publicly charging per se, um, and and residential, of course. So it's all about understanding what the different locations and use cases need, because there are different solutions, and putting the right one in. And the the big ask is the power. That's that's often a showstopper. So where's the power coming from? Is it the building? Is it the grid? And then. Future-readying those first installations to be ready to grade up and put more infrastructure in as it's required. So, do your charging units work whether people are, are,
1: are going uh, from the grid or if they're going off-grid and they've got their own solution? There, it, it'll work either way.
4: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, where the power—we don't mind where the power comes from. Uh, if it's renewable, it's amazing, uh, and that's all about storage more than generation, right? So, um, if there's a battery involved, and that doesn't have to be necessarily lithium-ion, it could be through weight or through hydrogen, other ways of storing electricity and then putting it for fantastic. I I mean, as you probably know, there's a lot of renewable generation going on and it can't all be used, which is tragic. So if we can store it and then put it into things like EV charging, then we are truly off-grid and and, and really contributing to helping climate change and air pollution. And, of course, there's never been more in focus than now with the
1: situation in, in Ukraine and the disruption to power supplies and the costs of energy going up and up. I mean, you will have seen, I'm sure, growth in the market over the last few years. But, I mean, we're, we're looking now, presumably, at exponential growth over the next five years or so.
4: Yeah, I, I've been doing this about 15 years. So I've obviously seen a very slow growth. But now it's it's game over. Um, people are starting to see the benefits of EBGN. Uh, Electric vehicles, uh, they're enjoying them. There's now much more choice, greater range. It's a truly um, practical solution now. And the great news is that there is no compromise. It's a much better form of transport, much more enjoyable, much more efficient, absolutely faster. But the one challenge, of course, is the range and refueling. But that's also an opportunity. It's opportunity for landowners, tenants, and everywhere these cars sit for long periods. Um, And that's what we're empowering. And, and I mean, these are
1: nice looking, I can't believe I'm saying this, it sounds like a real geeky thing to say, but these are nice looking charging units, you know, I've seen a few uh, in locations around, these look very, very good, but how quick are they? That's the question people want to know is, how quickly can I can I get juice into my car?
4: Yeah, and, and that goes back to there's two ways to do this, you can either use, so, so the grid is AC, alternating current, and the batteries are DC, so at some point you've got to convert that AC uh, to DC to get into the to, to, to the batteries, and there's two ways of doing that: use the car's AC-DC converter, or do it much more quickly outside the vehicle using um, a, an AC-DC converter that's bigger, faster, uh, and typically that the latter you'll see at motorway service stations for on-route solutions. And there you can go up to 350 kilowatts. You literally can charge hundreds of miles in minutes, uh, getting very close to put, actually putting petrol in. But you actually don't need to do that, because if you're literally empowering the idea that these things can be used to the cars' charger, trickle charging, while they're parked for long periods, you do it far more efficiently. Um, and I mean best example is, is people at home. You, you come home, you plug in, you go to bed, you wake up, and somebody's filled your car up for you. And, at far, and if you buy a decent electricity overnight tariff, Um, then it's at 5p per kilowatt hour and so to fill my car up, sorry listeners, it's about £5 to get me 300 miles
1: Wow, uh, that, that's fantastic. I know people who have got uh, sort of dishwashers and washing machines set to, to go on the overnight tariff as well, so they're getting everything at that cheap rate, which is fantastic. Um, so, I mean, for a building owner, obviously if they, you know, we have a, a, a lot of listeners who are developers, they may be building brand-new buildings, but also there's a lot of retrofitting of all kinds of things going on at the moment, and I guess this, this works in either case.
4: It does, and in an ideal world, we, uh, all new buildings... Um, would be able to have this ready to go, and I'm sure, and they are. You know, ESG, environmental, social, governance is really pushing this along to incentivise new developments and existing conversions. But uh, sadly, conversions are expensive by, by definition because the uh, have, buildings haven't been built. For this, and, and, and uh, that's the most expensive piece. It's the infrastructure. It's the it's the um, digging of holes, laying cables, and making good. That's the most expensive piece. But going forward, when when we build new and redevelop sites, we can really put this in an early stage, and then it's just the cost of the copper. Excellent, Martin. Where can people find out more? Um, www.rawcharging.com it's all there and i very happy to help with either as they're selling it uh,
8: paying monthly or fully funded
4: Constructive Voices live at Footprint
8: Plus My name's Mike Harrison I work for a developer called You I. I'm the delivery director for a project in Manchester called Mayfield and we're here today because in August last year a small SME who had developed a, a novel product an additive for concrete approached us Um, We were their last resort, really, because they'd been around town. No one would entertain them. But I have an engineering background, I understand concrete, and they came to us with a proposition uh, uh, to reduce the embedded carbon in concrete by 50%. So what I did is I I spoke to them, I I rinsed them through and through to get comfortable with it, understood the technology, and then, with my engineer, created um, a developmental slab that they could then pour... And and we we could then because it's important when you're developing a new product that it has to be at reference scale, so it's got 90 cubic metre pour, which is a is a bit a reasonable pour for a construction site. We use that and their product in in a in a novel way that could then demonstrate to the world the benefits of adding this product, which is called Concretine, into the concrete. Um, and and what it does is it gives you um, a lot greater strength in the concrete for the same cementitious content so for those technical guys out there a 35 newton concrete achieves its strength within 24 hours and then goes up to 70 newtons after 21 days so which what that means is you're getting two three times the strength that you would have anticipated for the same level of ingredients and therefore reducing the amount of carbon. Involved in producing that slab. How have you found the networking side of things and
3: speaking with like-minded people?
8: So that's great. And I think these sort of events are really important. It's a very kind of uh, workshop-type environment. It's 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 easy. It's comfortable. And I think it's important for people when they're out of that work environment to be open to new ideas and to kind of present them because a lot of the stuff that's being discussed here today is not uh, is work in progress and so sort of say. It, this product, Concretine, it will be ready to buy on the shelves in three, two, three years' time. I've listened to some of the other speakers, and um, it's about understanding the, the synergies between what we're, what's been done by us as a developer and the supply chain, and then bringing it together to, to create viable, sustainable projects for, for people and the UK. Yeah, Excellent. I think that's what the whole... Uh,
3: drive towards carbon At zero was all about like minded people coming together with different ideas your idea your your product sounds absolutely amazing Um, I'm in construction myself I know exactly what you're talking about here and and it really does uh, feel like a product that could be the next step that's needed going in the right direction so what is the next step for the product and and where are we going
8: to see it next so um, at the moment it's in real scale use out on certain specific projects Um, to get to uh, it needs certification that, that's a process that takes around about two years and through that in the two-year period, two things will be occurring. there are reference projects where the clients understand and can manage the risk like our company um, and then there and then the, in, in parallel the, the, the certification the BBA certification will be developed and signed off and that means it then will go into mass market.
0: This
1: is constructive voices. And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices
6: podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode.
1: And on our website, where there's lots more information too. That's constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something.